All righty. Welcome, everybody, to Fall In. And we haven't had an episode in a couple weeks, but definitely glad to be back here with a very interesting guest. Of course, my name is Brian Britt, and I have uh, Big Al, uh, who is always with us uh, here, and uh, can't wait to talk to, I do believe, Bjorn Johnson, I do believe, if I'm not mistaken. How you doing? Introduce yourself. Hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, yep, you got it right. It's Bjorn Johnson. You can pronounce it right, which is a challenge. Uh, Al knows that sometimes I have other nicknames like BJ0RN and all sorts of great things. Uh, I did have a call sign that was as Army Aviator Swede, so I don't mind if people call me Swede because I'm Swedish. Uh, yeah, that was figure. one thing that uh, we kind of talked, me and Big Al kind of talked about uh, in preparation for this, saying that he kept calling you the Swede and things like that. You know, uh, so so is that that just comes from your ancestry? Because you don't sound Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely from my ancestry. My dad's 100% Swede and I've got a large percentage of Swede in me, so that's that's what it came from. One hundred percent. Well, um, just kind of like, uh, what was your rank in the military to when you left? Is kind of just a way everybody can know what what, what uh, plateau you kind of reached there before you left. Sure, um, I retired as a lieutenant colonel, um, and I sp- I spent uh, time in every rank structure the army has uh i was enlisted warrant officer and and a regular line officer so spent time in all three well that's definitely interesting i'm sure you have a bunch of stories to tell for sure but i kind of want to go to big al big al hasn't said anything i know that you you kind of mentioned that you guys somewhat had a pretty close relationship isn't that right big al yeah yeah known Bjorn for a number of years our, our kids kind of grew up camping together if you will we just kind of blended blend our families and i think jordan and i were even roommates for a period of time yes we were we lived together for how long was that almost a year i think wasn't it yeah just short of a year yeah yeah we've definitely known each other for a long time families are pretty close yeah definitely the way that big al kind of characterized it was that uh y'all your families kind of grew up together in a lot of ways and uh definitely pretty cool so but he also mentioned, I know you mentioned Lieutenant Colonel that, you know, and he was, I don't believe in the officer ranking. I mean, did that cause any kind of conflicts? I know whenever you guys kind of saw each other around. <laughs> so, um, no, not for real. But if, if anybody that knows Big Al um, knows that Al will, will pull the string if he can. And uh, there was more. Wait, wait, what do you mean? Oh, you, yeah, whatever. Um, Al would. Uh, would would definitely poke that bear or pull the string on something like well whatever you say sir you know and uh but no it was all <laughs> just uh, a sarcastic sir yeah 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 of course you know if, if there were and we al and i didn't have very many opportunities to work uh side by side in the military professionally uh, i do know that, that 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 would have been a professional relationship but 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 on the personal side when we were together you know as families and hanging out and living together i mean it was it was everything you would expect it to be um it was a good time you know and and there was there was no division of rank between the two of us uh, as, as as per se now i'd love to get a little bit more background information about like uh you know the decision to join the military what your life was looking like before you did that if you don't mind sure um, so I joined the military while I was in college. I joined in my, uh, the summer of between my freshman and sophomore year, 1986. Um, and really I, I joined, uh, I was encouraged to join by a, by a roommate of mine 
who had been in the military active duty and was then off and in college after leaving, separating from the service, Um, at least as an active duty soldier. He was in the reserves or guard at the time. And uh, so I joined and and I joined as an enlisted person uh, with with the goal of being in ROTC to to get my uh, my commission. And I did that uh, ultimately, you know, finished college and got my commission. And as a member of the at the time, the Army Reserves in Minneapolis, St. Paul area, um, I was sent to flight school. And so uh, as far as my motivation, there was a large uh history of my family, uh, almost everybody. And I, I really have to think there's only one person that I can think of that was in the army. And that was one of my grandfathers. Everyone else had joined the Navy, um, and was in the Navy or served in the Navy. That's my uncles, uh, served in the Navy, um, and other folks served in, in other military, but, but one in the army. And so I felt like I wanted to serve our country. Um, but it, there was, it was a it was an encouragement by friends and that that made me join and so that's why I did it. I got you. Now, did, did that cause any conflicts though? Because I know a lot of the branches kind of butt heads a little bit. You know, Navy versus Army. <laughs> so I mean, no, not not in not in inner, not just in, maybe in, even joking around. No, but you know I, what, though, Bjorn, if I could butt in here, though, it makes a lot of sense now because you kind of strike me as a naval guy. Thanks. Wow. See, that's what I was talking about. That kind of stuff right there. <laughs> Big Al coming through with an example right in front of us. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that would be it. Yeah, pulling the string. Yeah, that's it, no, yeah. it was. Uh, there was no conflict w- with my family. Now, there's a there is a long history of of uh, you know some some going back and forth between the services. And so that still exists. Heck in the service, there's, there's going back and forth against your branches. And, uh, but really when the, when the rubber hits the road and people were, we're a team and we're an organization and we come together every time we're seeing groups not come together afterwards. We love to, you know, joke with each other about who's better, who's worse. Now, that kind of brings me back to Tammy's interview that we had just a few weeks ago to where she said something similar to where, yeah, we, we'll we'll give them hell, but, you know, if anybody – it's like, you know, picking on your little brother or something like that. Like, like you, you, you'll pick on them, but if, if they're at school and someone's picking on them, you defend them. Well, I don't right. you just accept the analogy that I give you. It, it, the Arabs have a saying, and it says, me – and my brother against my cousin, me, yeah. my brother, my cousin against a stranger. Well, that's essentially so we, what it is. Yeah, we look at each other, you know, through the various branches of service as, you know, well, like, obviously the Navy is our sister and the Marines are our little brothers. You know what I mean? That's just kind of the, that's the little uh, rifts between the different branches. So, yeah, well, and, and even, like I said, in the aviation branch, you know, that you have multitudes of airframes from fixed wing, rotor wing you know, attack helicopters, utility helicopters, and you can be sure that they each um, give each other a ribbing about their various, you know, as an Apache guy, you know, we, we're flying gunships and we're all full of, you know, piss and vinegar and testosterone. And we'll tell the utility guys that they're just glorified bus drivers, you know, or something like that. But again, at the end of the day, uh, we're all teammates and we know we can't do it without each other. So. Wow. That was, that's, that's mean. <laughs> Y'all are glorified bus drivers, man. 
I bet that that definitely probably would hurt my feelings, but I'm a civilian, so it makes more yeah, sense. It's one of those things. It's one of those things where you just kind of accept that because you know, like I told you earlier, Brian, aviation is the only branch. It's all three, which is uh, combat arms, combat service, and combat service support. So, right. you know, we we get to fit in. You know, everything from medevac to assault. You know, so yeah, it, it's kind of a slipper that fits everyone's feet, if you will. Yeah. Now, now I was told that you actually went to flight school, though. So, like, uh, that means you were actually a pilot. Like, you were you were flying the uh, you were using the Apaches, from what I've heard from Big Al. Yeah, I closed out my career uh, flying Apache Delta model longbows, um, but I started with uh, Hueys in training, and then was qualified in the Cobra, so the AH one uh, F model Cobra, and flew that for a while, and then Alpha model uh, Apaches, which is the first up model of Apaches that came into the Army inventory in the mid-80s. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, mid-80s. That's right. And um, so, yeah, but I finished uh, as a Delta Delta model Apache Longbow pilot. I was a maintenance test pilot as well, so I was a qualified maintenance test pilot and spent my time, you know, fixing the aircraft and preparing them for, uh, you know, our team and our, our unit to fly them. Um, but, but we... We don't just fly as maintenance test pilots. We've, we're, we're part of the combat crews as well. So we're out there flying uh, in the combat missions uh, because they want a maintenance guy along. If you have a problem, a maintenance guy can uh, potentially fix it or potentially fly it back. You can swap seats and and the maintenance guy is authorized to potentially, uh, depending on the, the issue with the aircraft, they can take the aircraft back. Whereas a uh, standard IP or, or PI pilot, a PC, would not be, be authorized to fly it back in most cases. Well, that's pretty smart, though. To, I think you know, have them cro- have you guys cross trained in a lot of ways. So, I mean, you went to flight school, got you know, uh, <clears throat> did you go overseas and have to actually you know, fly combat missions and things of that sort? Of course, yeah. I spent uh, three uh, different times. I went to Germany twice in the in the, an army, sorry, in an Apache unit uh, in the Sixth Cav in Eleventh Aviation Regiment in Illesheim, Germany. Uh, I've got five combat deployments, um, and so yeah, I've definitely got combat time. Uh, it's, it is. Uh, I don't know. I'm just humble about it. That's all there is to say about it. Um, it's it's one of those things that uh, I dr- I don't like to brag about it because I don't like bragging about war. Um, I did my job, but uh, I definitely had combat deployments and combat time. Now you mentioned Germany. Now like, that that, that kind of confused me uh, about uh, you know how, combat missions in Germany. I mean, in Germany, it's not really an active war zone or anything like that. Was was it in Germany that some of the combat missions took place? Or no, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to confuse anybody that's listener or to the listeners or you. Uh, Germany was where I was overseas, uh, and then um, you had mentioned overseas. As far as the places I've been to, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, and uh, Bosnia. Now, all of, almost all of my flight combat time uh, has been in Iraq. Um, I did go to uh, Afghanistan as an advisor uh, as well. That was not flying. I wasn't flying in Afghanistan. Don't forget, you, miss, you forgot to mention Saudi Arabia. Well, I went to Saudi Arabia as well. So, I mean, I've, I've been to other places too, Albania. I had combat time in Albania, uh, Kosovo uh, specifically. Um, we, we staged out of Albania initially, uh, went into Kosovo, and then later on we staged out of Macedonia and flew into Kosovo, and that was also combat time. But um, 
so yeah, I've been other places, been to Saudi Arabia for a year. Uh, again, I was a logistics guy in Saudi Arabia, helping field uh, Apaches, Blackhawks, and AH-6I helicopters to one of their National Guard brigades. So my job there was, was more of an acquisitions job than it was flying uh, helicopters for them. Now, now, Bjorn, just for the record here, let me. Uh, you were actually deployed to Bosnia out of Ilisham, right? No. So the unit was, but that was before my time. They, okay. Matter of fact, they got back from their Bosnia tour just months before I was assigned there. Um, when I was in Bosnia uh, or assigned to Bosnia, I had come out of the National Guard on a, on a National Guard, uh, you know, Title 10 tour. So they would activated our unit. And so when did we lose you born? Bjorn? No, I think we uh, kind of had a little bit of a technical difficulty there. We didn't weren't able to hear what you just said. OK, so yeah, I'm sorry. I got a phone call while I was talking to you and apparently <laughs> oh, okay. my audio. Um, I'm not exactly sure where, where you last heard. You were saying that um, <clears throat> when you went to Bosnia, you, you, you were saying the unit you, that you were in it just got back when you were there, but yes. you out of the National Guard. The Ilisheim unit had just gotten back uh, when I was assigned to the Ilisheim unit as an active duty guy. So it sounds a little goofy, but it, it, you know, got to understand my timeline and what I did. I was in the National Guard up until uh, 1997 and went active duty in 98. So when I went to active duty in 98, I, I was assigned to 6th Cav in Elsheim, Germany. So that's where I went. But in 96, 97, I was, assigned, I was in the National Guard in Minnesota, and we had been activated to support the, the mission in Bosnia. So I worked for the headquarters. Uh, I worked for the G3 in uh, Heidelberg, Germany, and, and would go down to Bosnia to various places. Uh, Skopje and uh, I'm trying to remember the one of the bigger ones, but um, and we would go down to Bosnia and, and as part of our G3 plans and support that we did for that mission. Again, I wasn't flying in Bosnia. Okay. Definitely. Uh, so so for a long time, like you said, you were just in the National Guard. So like that, that was kind of more just calm. And then what made, what was the, did they kind of pull you into enlistment? Like to where, or, or maybe on active duty, I should say. Yeah. So again, a little more background without, without boring anyone to death. Um, after flight school, well, really I was sent to flight school as part of the army reserve. So they had, they had a slot uh, given to them by the army to train army aviators. And, and I filled that slot and I came back from flight school to my reserve unit. There was a, there was a time when the army did a realignment, uh, ARI army realignment initiative, and they took combat arms and they moved it all, all with very little exception, but they moved all combat arms to the national guard and they put all the combat service service support in the reserves, uh, as far as the reserve and guard system goes. So, when I moved over to the Guard, because the Army moved everybody to the Guard that flew Cobras, I was flying out of the Guard at the time. And again, we got the deployment order uh, to go to Bosnia, but I was a, a captain. I was the Delta Company commander, and um, I, I moved over there as a desops plans guy uh, in the, in the, as a captain. Um, then, <laughs> 
when I went on active duty, I had I resigned my commission as a captain and uh, was direct commissioned to warrant officer, and I flew as a W two, W three or W two promotable my entire time in active duty before I was uh, reassigned as a captain uh, and took my commission back, and then later on, you know, earned major and, reti- and lieutenant colonel and retired. Now, how did that work exactly, Bjorn? How did you how did you go from being a W two promotable to back to captain? Well, um, it, it, I won't bore you with the form numbers or anything, but it was it was a simple uh, it was a simple request. Okay, uh, so you do, you wanted to do that? Yeah, I I kind of not because I didn't enjoy the heck out of what I was doing, um, but but you know in in true um, open book, I, I I wanted different opportunities for myself when I retired. Um, and so if I make a general statement that a warrant officer um, is is more sought after for flying positions when they retire because they are the technical experts, they have all the flight experience, et cetera. And I kind of saw myself as wanting to do something more in the, in the higher level management. And again, when I retire. Um, and so I, I, I was trying to pave that road for myself uh, at retirement. And so I asked for my commission back and, and with support of my unit, which was uh, they were very supportive of that. And, and they thought that it was a good fit. Uh, I was accepted and, and basically went back to being a captain. And that's definitely very interesting, just considering you also, I mean, Lieutenant Colonel, I mean, you, you definitely got really high up in the ranks. I mean, was that initially the goal? Was it because you had the college education? Like, what's the... What's the, the path difference between, you know, maybe something that a, a guy that just enlists normally versus someone who enlists from college and, and completing their co- college courses and then going on to do what you did? Sure. Well, generally speaking, uh, to be a commission officer in the Army, you have to have a college degree. Um, we Our warrant officers are commissioned as well, and the college degree is not required. It's highly encouraged, uh, you know, as you move up the rank structure in the warrant officer corps. Um, and I may be misspeaking. I, don't, I still don't believe it's a requirement in the warrant officer uh, rank structure to have a degree. Um, but yeah, I didn't think it was, I, I knew it wasn't. I just didn't know if they'd changed anything. They're still doing high school to flight school as far as, I'm, as far as I know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and even in the war, sorry, even in the RLO uh, regular line officer or, or regular commission officer, uh, it's not a requirement uh, to have your degree before your commission, but you cannot make the rank of captain without a degree. Um, and again, probably speaking a little out of turn of, you know, the process, but a degree is required to be a, a, a regular officer in the army. Um, so having the degree allowed me the flexibility to, to maintain, retain, go back and be a captain and later on earn, you know, major and lieutenant colonel. And as far as education during your service, very, very similar. There are, there are, there are parallels in how we train our, our cores and they start off with your basic course then you go to your advanced course and then you go to senior courses and and so no matter what you're no matter what rank structure you're in the army's uh, is designed to to move you along as you grow and mature as a soldier as a person and so there you know you do senior courses no matter what rank structure you're in uh, and nowadays we even cross uh, we, we bring people in from the other rank structures to courses. So, for example, I went to a, a, my most senior course I went to was CGSC, Command and General Staff College. 
that CGSC course, when I went, we, we had folks that were warrant officers and senior enlisted in our, and that, that was a recent change at the time, uh, 2009, 10, um, circa, circa 2009, 10, where, where they were bringing in folks from the other, uh, rank branch, from the other rank structure, like, like, um, uh, enlisted and like warrant officer and even foreign services. And we, we bring them in and that's a way for us to, to, uh, develop those folks, uh, in those rank structures to understand each other and how we work. Um, and so that, that, that is not unusual today. I know they do that. Yeah, definitely not a bad idea to just kind of include, you know, different, that's interesting though, foreign. Um, so like, you know, even, from other countries, like an armed armed force member there could come in and sit in on one of those classes. Absolutely. We, uh, we have exchange. I, I, I don't know the, the details cause I was never in the RC structure, which is human resources command or anything like that. But, uh, our allies, it, it is very common for us to trade not only school assignments, but actual, uh, operational assignments. So as an example, it is not unusual to see a, let's just say, a Norwegian pilot serving in an American unit and vice versa, an American pilot serving in a Norwegian. Or a Swedish say, pilot. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, yeah. And don't get me wrong. I say not unusual. It's not super common. You don't, you don't find one in every unit. Um, but but it's done and it's done on purpose because we want to understand how each each other's services, how we operate. And, and that better allows us to synchronize when we do combat arms or combined arms and, and uh, we're doing it together against a common enemy. Yeah, we always had an Australian at uh, Fort Campbell. Yeah, Australians. Uh, we, I, I had an Iraqi um, in my CGSC class. In, in my group, we have a small group. So you have a large class of maybe 500 or something like that, officers. Um, and then you have small groups. And in my small group, we had an Iraqi uh, uh, officer, a major. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. So, I mean, it definitely seemed like was, you know, everybody in there was committed to, to trying to learn from each other. I think that's the biggest part of that, you know, trying to learn from each other. And, and, and I'm sure you saw a lot, though, in your combat operations to where you actually had to, you know, do uh, those missions side by side, like you said, with other people uh, from other countries and things like that. I mean, especially in Iraq. I mean, I think that was that that it was like a little bit of a coalition, wasn't it? Yeah, when you yes, it was a coalition. Um, me personally, I didn't have a lot of experience, uh, personal hands-on experience with flying with uh, coalition units in combat missions or anything like that. And I, and I can't really speak to how common that might be. I think what happens is is we'll often work side by side, maybe in a supporting mission, uh, you know, where they've got their piece of the of of the of the combat battlefield, and we've got our piece. And maybe it's done at, at a higher level where it's organized and synchronized. But, I mean, it was it's pretty rare to get um, I, I can't speak for the Army. I, I don't know about the Air Force and how you know they work or Navy. But uh, for the Army to work side by side in, in the aviation and flying the mission together where maybe you've got a German attack helicopter alongside an Apache. I, I've never seen that. I, I definitely am not going to say we don't do that, but. Uh, mostly yeah. when we come together and train, it's it's more about talking and training and studying doctrine and talking, uh, you know, and learning lessons learned from each other's various, you know, experiences, because 
foreign uh, other countries have experiences in other uh, areas, whether that's a, a different geographic location, cold weather, you know, Alaska or or, you know, Russia or, or maybe a hot desert location somewhere in Africa or somewhere where we've not been recently, but they have. So that's that's how you learn a little bit about the doctrine. Yeah, definitely to be able to, to tackle those challenges that they might have already dealt with. Yeah, that definitely sounds like it could be very useful. I mean, uh, but one one question I kind of came to mind was, uh, you know, the thought of friendly fire, at, you know, with the coalition and even people that are in the U.S. Army. Was there ever any like cases of uh, friendly fire? Because, I mean, you're flying around in a helicopter. It's hard to have all the information. Hmm. So no, there there was none that I was directly involved with, uh, or or close units where where we had uh, incidents that were um, listed or or determined to be friendly fire incidents. I, I, I'm sure it's been done. You've seen it. We've all seen the stories where there's a friendly fire incident. Um, I will tell you, the Army makes takes great strides to prevent that. Uh, we train. We have uh, threat ID classes. We have threat ID requirements where. Um, we get tested on them, and so as aviators, we have to we have to be able to readily recognize what we know the common enemy vehicles and the common friendly vehicles, and and we're tested on that, uh, you know, quite quite stringently, and and it's an annual test, you know, so it's not something you get tested once and you go, okay, you know, you know, uh, you know, German vehicles and you know Russian vehicles, you did a great job, you know, or Iraqi vehicles or Chinese. And to, and to note too, uh, just on that point, uh, Bjorn, but the warfield, the battlefield, is, it's very dynamic. It's not, it's not fluid, so it's changing constantly. So, especially for for gun guys or whatever, you're always having to update, you know, what the target actually looks like. Because in Iraq, we had a huge problem with IEDs, right, Bjorn? Yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, and like you said. It, it, it's no longer gone, or at least today, as we talk about it, gone are the linear battlefields, and instead we have asymmetric warfare where it's all every, it's everywhere. Everywhere you turn, the enemy could be, um, and so and also everywhere you turn, the friendlies could be. Um, so for sure, there is uh, there's a you it's you got to be you got to be on your toes, and you really got to be able to recognize. Um, and often we were not even often we rely heavily on our intel. You know, so we've got we've got intel folks that that give us briefings before missions, provide us the, as much detail as they can possibly provide, and so we already have some expectations as we go, and we're already thinking about recognition, and we're already thinking about battlefield orientation, and and yes, battlefields are dynamic, but with that intel, um, it helps you get a clearer picture of the battlefield before you before you enter it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to stay that way, you know, because you're getting intel briefs daily. You know, this is so every all of this information is coming and they're using that in the air as well as on the ground. So, uh, Bjorn, I'm going to I'm going to hijack the show here just a little bit to talk about uh, some of those missions that you flew in Iraq as a gun guy. You know, how many times you guys actually blown up somebody? Uh, well, early on, it was a lot more often than later. Um and then there was, you know, escalations time, you know, 2007 again, you know, Iraq started in 2003 and then in seven, you know, there was the surge. And so we, we you know, we had a lot of battlefield engagements, uh, sometimes daily, um, you know, 
I, I would put it to you this way. At the beginning of the war, there's there's probably daily events uh, where you're engaging direct, direct fire with the enemy. Um, and later on, your mission is, as an Apache guy would be to escort either a ground convoy um, do a movement to contact in an area where you're where you have suspected enemy and you may or may not get contact. Um, and of course, there was a lot of ISR intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. We called it. I, I mean, ISR is what we called it. ISR missions. Um, and so sometimes you're just out there with your with your capabilities, whether that's a radar or a visual optics, and you're recording activity or but an Overwatch. There's there's so many missions, you know. And, and we can do multi-role with an Apache. Some some will argue, you know, we can't do it well, but you can be a scout helicopter and an Apache because of our systems. You can be an attack helicopter, um, you know. It, and so you get a lot, you get a variety of missions to, to do. Um, as a percentage, I, I would say that you, the percentage of direct combat engagements, you know, are much lower than they are than, you know, than the non-combat, non-direct fire engagement missions. And that's just a product of the, of the war we were in. Um, but, you know, Afghanistan was pretty hot, heavy a lot um, for a long time, and I didn't fly in Afghanistan, so I can't speak to that. But you were present in Afghanistan around those that were flying and fighting? For sure. Yeah, I've got a lot of, yeah. So here's a question I want to ask you kind of kind of directly. Um could you notice a difference in, say, a, a vanilla gun guy who, you know, slick sleeve, new to the cockpit, versus the guy who, you know, he's an ace with, with multiple kills? And, and I guess where I'm going with this is, is that because you're actually firing from the from the helicopter, does that take a toll mentally, or is it just, you know, is it just like throwing major league pitches? Hmm. I don't. I think that from the outset, just you know, looking at someone without a without a, you know having a conversation or flying with them, you, you might not be able to tell. But it's certainly having conversations, uh, flying with someone, getting to see you know their uh, demeanor in the cockpit, their 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 voice inflection in situations or something like that, uh, and have there be no doubt that that when you're in an engagement, it. it it's an exciting, uh, stressful time. And, um, outside of that, it's much different. And so the stressors, everyone deals with them differently. Um, some people have, you know, come back from missions and had PTSD or, or just, uh, sometimes it's, we take the D out of it nowadays. So I'm just speaking, frankly, it's PTS, post-traumatic stress. Uh, it's not a disorder, and if we take the disorder word out of it, and we can start talking about it more of uh, it's normal when you're engaged in something like that. Uh, I will also say that our society has post-traumatic stress in and everything outside of of the military. If if you're in a situation that that has you scared all the time because you're in, in you know I, I won't name them all, but you could be you could have a very bad home environment. You could have had a very bad car accident and have post-traumatic stress. I mean, post-traumatic stress is just, it's, it is what it is and it's how you deal with it. So the army made a, again, a big effort to, um, train us and present and show us that there are different ways to deal with stress. And so they had a, a big program that they did. Uh, I 
Al, do you remember what year they started doing the programs for um, for handling stress? I want to say it was like in the around 2005 or seven, somewhere in that range. Could you be more specific? Um, yeah. Um, trying to think of the, the term term they use for it. Give, give me a minute. Um, I'll go back to it. But so they would train that that training was classroom training. It gave us avenues of, of how we, you know, how, who could, who could we talk to, how we can best deal with it, whether, and they gave us, it gave us ways to, to realize that it's normal uh, to have stress from combat and, and then to say, well, I'm not, and you don't feel like when you go to seek help that, that you're an outsider or that you, that you're different. Um, and so basically that was their effort was, and they pushed hard on that. And, and that way you weren't afraid to go seek help, whether that was from a friend or from a, an actual, you know, counselor of some sort, whether, you know, whether that's a chaplain, uh, or an actual counselor, you know, medical counselor. And, you know, as, as we sit here and we're talking and Brian's always like, well, tell a story, but we kind of, we jumped into the mental health thing and, and I'm sitting here and, and, uh, during that first rotation, I, I remember I was, uh, I made my way up the mausel and, uh, so I'm, and I'm in Bravo company. Well, they, they, next thing you know, I'm, I'm the headquarters platoon sergeant. So where I'm going with this and, I inherited a guy that <clears throat> was having post-traumatic stress, but we're, you know, we're at war and this guy has to go over and, uh, sit in a group circle, you know, and he, what he's, he's trying to get out of theater is what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I remember just the, the way I, I looked at him, felt about him, thought of about him just because you know i was having to go over there with him and sit there in, in these little group circles and you know and we're in combat and i just remember uh, while you were sitting there talking i'm just remembering how i looked at that guy who was kind of going through that you know what i mean yeah and, like and how to prejudged him a little bit though you know if he you think he was just trying to get out of theater or was he really suffering him and you know maybe hindsight is a little bit better now oh yeah well i could i finished a book on it and and you know i'm not gonna talk about the little dude just because you know he's a local guy but uh i think i made the right assumption uh, you know what i mean it's just that you don't want to always, especially as a leader, you don't want to question people, but you, you know, you kind of got to know your soldiers. That's why I was asking you about the gunners, knowing the guys that are in the cockpit, because if you know people, you, it's a lot easier to kind of spot if something's off, uh, than if you don't know them trying to figure out what their behavior's like. That That's kind of where By I was figuring going. out their baseline. You've already know their baseline kind of, and if something's absolutely. off of that baseline, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to know the same thing with, with even your equipment. You have to know that, you know, you have to establish a baseline. So, right, yeah, and and I know it wouldn't take me too long to figure it out, but you know, so the the training, and I know you'll remember this now too, Al, but they they did uh, resiliency training, and and resiliency training for the military was just adopting some civilian stuff that the you know that the medical field had come up with for again for anybody that had some sort of stress and so they, they sent us through this resiliency training uh regularly annually you'd have uh 
re, you know, re-bluing of that and, and taking it again. And it was encouraged, you know, that to, to take steps, PT is a resiliency training. When you do physical training, it, it helps you reduce those stressors that are physiological in your body. Um, and just having a day out uh, with your friends can be resiliency and, and build up your resiliency because you get a chance to talk about it. So like you said, Al, when you're when you know somebody's at risk, you know, maybe they've, they've had a bad mission or several missions or just or just maybe having a tough time dealing with whatever it is they're doing, just, you know, taking off and flying outside the confines of a, of a military forward operating base under the security of the of the you know, the things we have there, uh, gate guards and, and guns that shoot down rockets and I, and, and stuff, stuff like that. You feel a little safer. The second, you know, you have to cross, you're already, you're already stressed. You're leaving this, the confines of the safety of the, of the forward operating base. So just flying straight level and going somewhere, you're already stressed. So people are going to handle that differently. And so we did the resiliency training so that we could find and teach and inculcate into our uh, organization's way to deal with that and, and hopefully reduce, uh, you know, suicides where people couldn't handle the stress, uh, couldn't leave, you know, you know, units are generally speaking, you know, not going to just let you go home because you're stressed out. Like Al was talking about, somebody wanted to find their way home. But instead, we found ways to, to deal with that as, as a unit. But Bjorn, let me ask you. Let me ask you this question, because this, this, because you're you're a leader. You know, you're you're one of those senior level leaders. Do you think that we, especially through your tenure, my tenure, and post, do you think that we actually did a good job of of dealing with mental health? And I'm talking about like a, you know, off the charts, like a real conversation. Do you think that we did a good job of dealing with the mental health issues? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll answer your question, you know, on an off the charts from my opinion, from my seat as I saw it. And I would say that we, we did as well as we could do in the, in the dynamic, ever changing situation that we are in these, these long back to back continual deployments. We, you know, as a member of the military, you don't get a vote a lot of times for, for a lot of things, you know, it, you just don't get a vote. You, you've signed up to defend the nation and whatever the nation asks you to do, you go do it. And, and so in cases of, of our, of our service members that had back to back deployments away from their family, the stressors of all their stressors, they could be financial stressors. They could be combat stressors. They could be personal stressors of fam of family going, you know, at home, a mom or dad, not doing well. You, you never know, but we, trained we we presented classes we we brought people in we looked we told people how to recognize the indicators of you know and, and so i'm going to say that we did a good job of of presenting it to our to the to the formations and giving them the tools um i'm not sure the numbers reflect that you know when you look at the suicides uh, and the rate of suicide but I also, you know, how many years, you know, 20 years we were, we were at war in Afghanistan. I mean, this isn't, this is, this That's isn't, not, sorry, no, it's not, it's just not other, it's not the same as other times where maybe it was four years or five years of war and you spent two or three away in World War II at a horrible, a much different 
much different environment for sure. I'm not even comparing the environments. But when you think about the back to back to back and you're not home. and So I think we did a pretty good job uh, and we reacted. It, the military is often reactionary based on the, the what what it's faced with. Um, but I think we did okay, Al. I really do. I, I do know that there's still a high number of, of folks with post-traumatic stress or stress and suicides. And, and I think we should continue to push uh, to reduce those in, in any way we can. And we rely on our medical uh, professionals to, and, and folks that, that come to the Army fr- from the medical profession to, and psychiatric to help do that, to help train us. And good leaders won't look negatively upon somebody seeking out help. And that was something we had to teach our formations. You know, how, how often did you see somebody that maybe needed help and you thought, well, they're not flying anymore or they're, or, or maybe they're shunned by the community, you know, that black sheep, uh, uh that, that definitely happened. I'm sure. I, I can't really specific, specifically think about a time where, where I knew somebody that was having trouble and we didn't, we didn't gr- bring them in the group and, you know, and take care of them. I, I'm not saying that, but I know it does. Well, I think the whole thing is too. I bet uh, you know it, it make the guy don't want to feel weak. I mean, of course he 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 knows he's going to be sidelined. Then he might not be open and honest about what he's actually feeling. A hundred percent. Yeah, I'm going to have to say for sure. Uh, even my even myself, uh, I can tell you that I would not have been real gung ho about about bringing up an issue and have it become known whether that was to my command or to my to my brothers that i was having an issue so i'm that's i think that's human nature so 100 percent, i'm going to say that until you can break that barrier you're going to continue to have that problem you're going to have the the stigma and, and it's very hard to break that i mean that's human nature the the weakness you've shown weakness and as soon as at least okay i just said i just basically fed into that you've shown a weakness but yet today Today we say when you recognize it and announce it and go seek help that that's actually a strength. Yeah, um, I will, I remember because I even had to tell my guys this, you know, because it, it's it was it was almost. I mean, we were in Iraq. This would have been, I believe, oh five oh six iteration, and and I had a guy that was working there, and I and I literally told him, I said, "Hey, man, you know, sometimes it's okay to cry. You know, it, it, it's okay to cry because I know your dad probably told you, you know." Don't cry, grown men don't cry, but I guarantee you, your daddy ain't never dealt with what you're dealing with right now. You know, sometimes it's okay to not be okay. But where I was going to go with this, the next question, Bjorn, because I was kind of feeding into this line, you also had a very unique perspective in the fact that not only did you have back-to-back deployments per se, uh, because you also have to take and put schooling in there, just because you're home doesn't necessarily mean you're home, but you have you have a family as well so so my question to you is how much of a difference do you think your military service made on you raising your family say if you just worked and i'm not i'm just going to say if you just had a normal civilian job by in which you were able to be available uh 99 of the time in in kind of manage your own schedule yeah well uh, for me, that was probably the biggest stressor. And, and of course, looking back, uh, I have the uh, I have the the benefit of 2020 hindsight, as I say what I'm about to say, and that is, I felt like um, 
I left I, I left my kids wanting in, in many situations because I wasn't there to be the father directly. You know, I was there was phone calls, there was letters, there was, you know, R and R for a week or two or yeah, but but look, when you're not there every day and you're gone for whatever reason, because as Al alluded to or said, even when you're home, you're gone. I had a I had an assignment at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where I was an observer trainer. And I said Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I didn't say Iraq. I didn't say Korea. I didn't say Saudi. And that particular a couple of years in my assignment there, I spent greater than 180 days out of each year gone away on you know deployed not deployed but traveling somewhere to train other units and and as an observer trainer so again even at home you're not home so i missed a lot um and it was hard and you know photos thank god for digital photos and internet and stuff like that so again that changed too you know you think about any time before the internet and when people were gone they were pretty much gone you know yeah you you can make a phone call but today you can video teleconference stuff like that and you can see things, but but you're still not there. And and I I look at that as a an advantage to the folks that aren't in the military that they got to be there, or at least they had the opportunity, you know, to be there for a lot of things that that we miss in the military. That's a big stressor for me. I I, I wish I could have been there for everything, and I just couldn't be. And we had a strong family. I have a wife Sherry who is absolutely amazing and has has really held us together uh, through a lot. And she continues. Hey, Sherry. And she's not here, but um, I mean, she's outside. But she's well, I'm here. just giving a shout out to Sherry. So when she does hear this, she'll, she'll hear me giving her a shout out. Yeah, no, she's she's continually held us together, and today she holds us together in a different way. We we deal with a, a son-in-law that's gonna gonna die likely from terminal cancer, brain cancer, and she's still holding us together long distance. You know, they live in Kansas, we live here. You know, and it, it's good to have a great spouse and. And I was lucky. That's awful to hear. Definitely prayers to your family dealing with that kind of a thing. That's got to be awful. And he was military too. He's he's now a separated, uh, a medically retired. He was an Air Force pilot. Um, so she married into the military. And actually, I'd, I want if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to go back. Um, and it's still on the it's still on the subject of mental health. Uh, using all my experience, my thirty one years, two months and ten days that I spent in the military. My daughter joined the military, Megan. Um, she joined the military as an MP, so she's enlisted. She's since risen to the rank of uh, staff sergeant, and um, so she's she's doing well. But I kid you not, her first assignment at the 101st Airborne Division was to a, a murder. She didn't know it was a murder at the time, but her first her first patrol night, she was on, and she gets called to a shooting or stabbing, correction, stabbing. And, and, you know, she had to show up to that and try to save this person's life while calling for help, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, waiting for, for, you know, medical people to show up. And at the end, you know, a month or two later when they figured out that the person wasn't just killed, didn't kill themselves, but, but actually was murdered. Um, yeah, and, but we talked to her a lot about right, right out the gate. I said, okay, you need, you should go talk to somebody about that. That is a high stress environment you're a police officer you show up you think you think you know there's a high stress uh, event going on and i i i tried to impart upon her to go talk to her chaplain to talk to uh leaders that maybe dealt with the same situation or to talk to a, to a medical professional and, and just to talk because regardless of whether she felt like 
I, I was encouraging her whether she felt stressed or whether she felt like that was something that she, you know, didn't want to talk about. I thought she should. And so I encouraged her to do that. Um, and, and, you know, going to, to this point, because this is the same, it's not, well, it, it kind of, your, your daughter and my son both joined the military. Uh, shout out to you, Megan. Uh, but Megan was raised in the suburbs. So yeah. she, you know, even though her dad was, was out there mixing it up and, and flying over mountains to shoot at bad guys and, and, you know, coming back. Cause you kind of like, you kind of are like Superman, you know, uh, she was never exposed to that. So and she wasn't exposed to like real high tense family. You know, you, I, all of our families have to be somewhat sane because we can't even be around somebody that doesn't have a security clearance. So, you know, that takes all of the felons out. But I'm, I'm saying that, that to say this, that so she just wasn't really around a lot of trauma or no. drama, if you will. Humans are products of their environment. And you can be sure that Megan wasn't a product of an environment that she is now a product of or that she's now experiencing. So you're right. Yeah. And, and I encourage her to seek out help. And only because today we do, we, we, we really push that that is not a weakness, that it's a strength too. Because think about this. Our folks in the military are an investment. We are an investment. For me as a pilot, I'm a higher dollar investment because it takes a year to train me. And, um, but, but, you know, so not to demean anybody at what they did, but when, when you are an investment, you don't want that person to get hurt mentally or physically. Um, and when you can do something about it, the physical part, I can't stop bullets from hitting me per se. And I can't stop myself from breaking a leg unless I, you know, training or something like that. But the mental part, this is where the leaders get a chance to interject. And the leaders get a chance to encourage you to go talk to somebody so that you don't become a mental casualty, a, a casualty of, of mental illness. And um, because you're hard to replace, it takes time, it takes effort, money and investment. And why do that when you can do preventative stuff? And so that's, I think, the, the environment we need today is to make leaders realize that, that sending people to get help, encouraging people, recognizing the signs, those are, those are ways to, to, to save on your investment, to, to continue to retain that, that, that asset that you have in that person yeah you can build another gun you can build another tank you know but you know you can't replace the human no not easily it takes time and we all like to think we're irreplaceable so uh, i know al was al was definitely irreplaceable <laughs> yeah oh ouch i said well, uh, i had some yeah, irreplaceable irreplaceable well thank you sir uh, as as yourself touche I had some questions though about like uh you know you were you were mentioning about you know you could get shot or something like that when you're in the Apache you're in those helicopters like how vulnerable are you in that pilot seat I mean like if someone was to maybe pull an AK out and start firing on your aircraft was that something that would be concerning Oh certainly anytime you're in a direct fire engagement it's concerning uh, I got to learn firsthand you know how uh, how durable the aircraft is and how survivable it is, even if for, for say you, you did get shot down to the point where you had to crash land or, or do a controlled landing or something like that. Um, so it's definitely concerning. Uh, I, I have uh, a specific engagement on the 23rd of March at the beginning of the war. Um, they made a, my, my crew chief, uh, one of our crew chiefs in our unit, but he was, he worked on with me often later became a, a 
a producer of films in, in California, out in Hollywood. And he decided at one point to produce a, a documentary film about that night. And so he did that. And, and so that particular night, you know, I had 20 plus uh, uh, direct hits on my aircraft in various places, uh, none of which killed or, or hit myself or my co-pilot, Cornell Chow. And um, but close, very close. The rounds entered our cock. Both of our cockpits, you know, were 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 engaged, were entered and, and perforated by rounds of various types. And uh, we lost almost all of our systems. We lost hydraulics. We lost the utility side. All we had was a primary, which allowed us to keep flying. But um, so it's a very survivable aircraft. There's there's um, there's armor in the seats, but I'm kind of a big guy, probably too big sometimes. But so there's portions that are exposed too. So that armor doesn't protect you everywhere. There's a blast shield between the co-pilot gunner and the pilot, so that let's say you had a very big round come in that maybe an RPG or something. It, there's potential to survive uh, as a pilot if, if one of the other's uh, cockpits were to be blown up by an RPG, you could survive uh, if the aircraft did because that, that shrapnel wouldn't potentially hit you. So, I mean, there's a lot of protections built in and redundancies and flight controls and things like that. That's very interesting because, I mean, that, that was kind of what I was wondering, like, you know, if small arm fire would still, you know, have an effect to where, you know, you could, like the glass, was the glass there you were looking out of, I mean, was that bulletproof in a way or? Oh, there's, there's nothing on the aircraft and small arms uh, historically. So look this one up in some fact checker later if you want. But historically, small arms is the largest, uh, largest reason for us to lose helicopters was small arms fire. And we had a we had a very uh, long in the tooth pilot uh, named Warren Alworth, who tried very vehemently to tell us, and he was our master gunner and he, you know senior guy, and he said, "Look, we need airspace higher than you know 500 feet," and we didn't get it. the the way the the way the combined arms thing went, they gave us 500 feet and below, or a thousand feet. I can't remember; it might even been 700 at the time. But, but basically they said, no, you're not going to get that. Well, if you think about how far a small arm can shoot, you're right in, you're right in their range, you know, three, two, three, 500 feet. And so small arms is a big deal. And, and it, it definitely can go through almost anything, you know, that, that with the exception of some of the armor, that the physical armor on that seat that protects us, um, but, and there's some physical armor around some things like engines and, uh, transmissions but it's very think about it this way the more armor you put on the helicopter the heavier it is so yeah. instead they rely on redundancies um, but, but also brian and bjorn can uh just to give you another idea that helicopter really isn't that big and it's pretty sleek but it's over a mile of wiring in that thing as well wow. so if hundreds, a, if hundreds of miles of wiring actually yeah. Think about that. Hundreds of miles of wiring to, to power all those systems. So one round going through a wire bundle, that's a bad day. Yeah, and we had a lot of that. Um, but or the, your rotor. Like, I mean, that seems like that would be a vulnerable spot, like the rotors. Yeah, they are. They're vulnerable to be hit, uh, but they're built to be sturdy enough to you know continue flight. We have many, many uh, examples of of holes being portions of entire portions of blades, you know, being blown off and, um, you know, it could still fly. Was it a rough ride? You bet. Um, or could you maybe <laughs> do an emergency landing and, and, and safely get out of the helicopter? Sure. 
Um, but no, redundancies are important and it makes the aircraft, the modern aircraft, much more survivable. You know, you have a primary and utility hydraulics. You have a, a number one and a number two generator that provides. So, you know, and two different wire bundles going to the same thing. So if one of them goes, the other one can pick that load up. You know, you have different banks of, of uh, controllers, power controllers. So again, if you lose one, the other one hopefully can pick up. And you don't pick up everything, but, but it, it's allowed to pick up, you know, the important things. <laughs> hey, sir. So uh, just going right in off of your comments of number one and number two, right? Yeah. Tell us your, uh, your scariest moment in flight. Uh, well, that would be the one I alluded to before. Yeah. Uh, on, uh, yeah, on the 23rd of March in 2003, um, it was about an hour and a half of direct fire engagements with the enemy, in which about 40 minutes into that flight, I was uh, combat ineffective. The helicopter had been engaged enough and took enough direct hits that I was I was no longer uh, it was no longer a two way battlefield for me. It was a one way one way battlefield. I couldn't shoot back. My, my crew member and not myself couldn't shoot back and it was chaos um, in in the battlefield we were we were ahead of the FIBA the forward edge of the battlefield and we were deep in enemy territory and so we were alone in the sense that if you got shot down and we did have a crew get shot down uh, you you and they got captured um, and they survived <laughs> they were later recovered by special forces um, but the point is, that was the scariest uh, event ever that I had. Um, ha have I had other mechanical failures and things that, that are, you know, pucker factors? Yeah. But for sure that night, hour and, like I said, an hour and a half of flight time in which half of it was was very intense. Very intense. You were in 3rd Battalion at that time? Nope. 6th uh, Cav. Um, so I was in Bravo Troop 6 Cav um, and 11th Aviation Regiment. There were three full squadrons of helicopters involved uh, in that uh, deployment that we were there under 11th Reg. One of them was, uh, two of them were the 26 and 66 Cav, and then the other was out of Fort Hood, Texas. Yeah, that was a very, uh, yeah, I was with the 101st there. Uh, yeah, they, they went around the west side of that uh, large lake uh, at the time. And again, like at that that day and that time and that that snapshot on the battlefield, uh, we were we were in front of everybody. The MEF, the uh, the Marine Expeditionary Force was behind us. The 101st, the 3rd ID, everybody was behind us. Uh, and our mission was to go and take out uh, things that could hurt them. In this case, we were looking to kill and destroy. There's terms we use in the military. You can you know a trit or you can destroy as an example and we were our intent was to destroy which was essentially make them combat ineffective for their artillery um so we had artillery as a target that night and we were which artillery is horrible to the infantry so you know that's that was our job to go knock out their artillery so that the infantry the, the marines and they could move forward into baghdad that's definitely very interesting, but it's, it's shocking that you guys are able to make it out without, you know, even be able to fire back. You just kind of had to limp home, I guess, and uh, luckily y'all didn't get shot down. It sounds like, uh, you know, definitely some type of force was with you there for sure because, I mean, like you said, I mean, bullets were coming through the cockpit. I mean, that had to just be such a scary, you know, thing to have to deal with. I mean, I don't know. I don't think any civilian realizes how much of how scary that would be. Yeah. Well, and you're right. And it, it, 
you can't imagine until you can't imagine it. You, it's an experience. That's, that's all I can tell you. you um, now, if, if you do feel so inclined, I mentioned that movie that, uh, that the, the crew chief made and it's called Apache warrior and you can watch it online and you can download it. And it's a, it's a pretty cool film. And, uh, yeah, if you get us that we'll put it down in the, we'll put the link in the comments. Yeah. The, uh, I, I can do that again. Patchy warrior, um, is the name of the film and it'll give you a real good idea because you hear the voices and the tension and the chaos going on because it, what we did is what he did was he took, uh, and with permission had actual gun tape video. That was, that's a big part of the, of the documentary. And then you have people interviewed that describe, you know, what was going on at the time. Yeah, definitely have to check that out. We'll definitely put a link in the description for sure. We'll, we'll kind of moving on a little bit here. I know we've, we've been running a little bit long here, but I wanted to get to your after-service career. I know that you left the military, I do believe, in 2017. Is that correct? Yep, uh, that is correct. I retired uh, officially, you know, November 1st of 2017. Now, uh, I know you mentioned that you had tried to get your commission back so you can kind of be on a good footing was it, uh, I think it was Major Warren Officer, wasn't that what it was? You were trying to get that to make sure that you would be able to land in a leadership role in a company or something like that? Is that correct? Yeah, so simply put, um, uh, I had I had desires to give myself options. At, having the Warren Officer time and a lot of flight time and experience, uh, I figured I'd have the option to take a flying job. Uh, give you an example, maybe a medevac you know, for one of the hospitals or something like that. But uh, outside of that, I was hoping to parlay my experience as, as a senior leader and retire as a lieutenant colonel or something along that lines that would get me a different type of job um, that, that required more, more of the managerial and management uh, than, than the flight side of my experience. So, yes, that was my goal was to leave the Warrant Officer Corps, uh, become a, a regular officer again. And I, I had no I had no intentions on a specific rank to retire to. Um, I certainly feel good about making lieutenant colonel and retiring as a lieutenant colonel, and I'm sure it's very helpful in my civilian uh, trans transition. So uh, uh, today, I am the director of quality, um, which which is a close uh, sister to being a maintenance guy uh, as Apache maintenance or any helicopter maintenance guy. Um, quality is a big deal you, you don't just do the maintenance and go fly and hope everything's okay instead you have a production control office that does the maintenance and schedules it in a quality control office which basically comes in and makes sure you did it according to you know the processes in the book um so now i'm the quality manager for a for a company um and i'm the quality director and and my job is to make sure that we are doing in this company the processes in accordance with the way we say we're going to do them yeah, definitely sounds like it, it fits fits you well for sure. I mean, uh, so are you feel satisfied with that? I mean, any other things that like maybe you're on your mind, um, you know, today that that mean a lot to you? Maybe even on the military when it comes to helping veterans. I mean, I know you you said that I think you uh, do go to the VA sometimes, right? I, we talked before the uh, actual podcast began. Yeah, um, sure. I think that, um, in my humble opinion. Some of the best things you can do as a military member in your transitioning is to get certifications and things, no matter what your skill set is. 
um, education is is when I say formal education in the sense like a bachelor's degree um, or associate's degree or some or even uh, just a, a trade degree of some sort. They they go a long way. But I see where now, as we as, as in my position, we hire folks. Certifications are are actually more important. Um, Sometimes there's a requirement to have a degree. So let's say we hire a particular person and we say, well, you must have a bachelor's degree. But then a, then certifications become even even like they, they're, they're your chin up, they're your leg up. So, yeah, you have a bachelor's degree, but I also have certifications in these five different things, you know. And, and again, it doesn't matter what your interest or emphasis is in, but those certifications are important. And so I, I would push... If I had, if I had my druthers, I would say that that the military members should go and get certifications in whatever interests them, uh, because those are the things that I think will carry them a little further and give them a lot more confidence as they transition as well. Um, yeah. Regarding VA, I I actually am involved and do use my VA uh, for for a lot of things. The medical, I, I'm not an active member of the VFW or um, any of the veteran organizations. I used DAV, the Disabled American Veterans. I used them to assist me in my transition. They were very helpful, and I would encourage anybody to use them as well. Um, VFW, um, th- there's those organizations are very good. I I just find myself far too busy with my civilian job and my family life to 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 feel like I can partake in and be with those organizations. Yeah, definitely still good to have those organizations around to help those people that maybe didn't transition as well as you did. Because I know there are a lot of, of guys that get out of the military that don't know what to do after that. And they're just, they're kind of lost. Yeah, for sure. And I I think that, I, I don't know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that those organizations are very important. And and leveraging them nowadays, when you transition out of the military, it's a requirement to go through a, a transition course. And they bring in all of the organizations, and they bring in a lot of other professions. Guys like me, even they'll come in. They'll bring companies. They'll invite company leadership in to talk to them and help them transition. It could be something as simple as uh, interview uh, techniques. And so they'll teach you. They'll they'll do mock interviews. And talk to you if you're a person that says um all the time and they'll say well <laughs> i mean people do it and i say you know i probably said it 50 times in this interview and some people say no i don't know and you shouldn't say that <laughs> uh but but those things help the military service members transition and and the more you take advantage of those things that are out there um, and go after so you take the course but you can use it afterwards too there's a lot of uh resume building uh courses they'll help you do it they'll, they'll you can bring all your experience in and they'll help you build a resume or again they'll steer you towards organizations that can help you let's say you wanted to be a program manager um or a project manager and that was your that was your goal there are there's an organization out there that you can join as a professional that that helps you do that that helps you and you go to monthly meetings if you'd like and so that helps you develop those things well, those things are all available, and they'll teach you that through those transition courses. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the people out there that are lost and don't really know what to do, they don't know about these things or just don't have the initiative 
to maybe go out there and look. So, I mean, it might even be a motivation factor, too, because, I mean, it's depending on what the mental health looks like for that, um, you know, military member that gets out of, you know, uh, the military. Because, I mean, they definitely – depression, you know, we've talked about suicide. You know, those things are things those guys have to deal with, too. And, and that, that lost feeling could also maybe even lead to those things. I, I would agree. Um when you're, if, especially if you're in for a long time, you know, when I say a long time, maybe, maybe five years or more, you've really, um, you've really gotten to feel part of a very elite group. There's a small percentage of our population that, that volunteers to serve today. And so that, that those relationships you develop are very close. And then you leave the military and you might not have that. You might not go to an organization or a neighborhood or even a state or anything, you might not be somewhere where you feel like you belong to anything. So, you know, I would personally encourage any veteran to get out and, and belong to something. You could join a, a shooting club, like at a, at a, at a skeet trap range, or you might just go join a church or just anything, a fishing group. You know, I like fishing a lot. So, you know, go be involved in bass tournaments. And again, those are some of those uh, really important. Wait, you know how to fish? Hey, dude, don't even talk about the time I fell out of the boat. You didn't even notice. Okay. <laughs> this is another story. Oh, man. What is what? <laughs> yeah, this is a real story. I'd love to tell it. Um, so we're fishing. It's Thanksgiving. We're on uh, Lake Martin in Alabama. And Al's in the back of the boat. And I'm in the front running the trolling motor. And and I fall in. Long story short. But he's got earbuds in and he's listening. Fall to in. Me. Hey, credit, roll, roll credits. <laughs> Sorry, he, go ahead. He's he's not really paying too much attention to me, which he shouldn't be. We're fishing. And uh, after I fell in, I, I it took me a bit to get his attention. When I finally did get his attention, he ran to my assistance and pulled me in. Um, and, and there I stood, you know, 50-degree weather on Thanksgiving weekend in Alabama, and I'm soaking wet. And I pretty much stripped down to my skivvies and laid my stuff out. It was nobody's on the lake but me and Al. Uh, we didn't see another boat, I don't think, that day. And I let my stuff air dry. But shortly after that, Al actually caught two bass on one lure at the same time. Like he was wow. cranking a crankbait in. He hooks into these fish, and, and the bass will school up, and they both bit at the same time, and he landed them both. I got a picture of it to prove it. So <laughs> That's crazy. And, and, you know, and just to make that story even more uh, exciting, Brian, uh, so the reason why Bjorn had fallen into the lake is because he allowed me to tie my own lure on. And sure, I got it. I could tie a knot. Well, guess what? As soon as I cast that, that sumbo, it's gone. Well, a little bit later on, he sees it. And when he reaches out to retrieve it, well. I was, was floating in the water. <laughs> yeah, he gone. You know, I'm glad that al but you didn't have to i wasn't gonna dime al out about that knot but that is true that is true and <laughs> yeah it, but hey the second knot worked great you yeah, because you tied it because uh, you imagine yeah anyway so he, he kind of helped you catch those two fish yeah I, like i said man it, my big al's uh opinion on hunting and fishing is when they call it killing and catching i'll be there every day nice <laughs> yeah but so just just kind of circle back on 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 you know that transition and finding a purpose in your life when you leave the military it's sometimes that's a hard transition because and, and i would encourage 
anyone leaving the military, any veteran of any number of years of service to go out and, and become a part of their community and, and it'll help them transition. It does give them purpose. Uh, God gave us life and a purpose. And if when you find your purpose, that that's going to help you not feel alone and lost. That I, I don't know. I don't know where I can help someone with that other than to tell them that those are very important things. Yeah, 100%. And I think a lot of the people out there that are feeling that lost feeling, I mean, me, I know Big Al's kind of mentioned it before in his uh, interviews to where, you know, he said that the Big Al that went into the military no longer exists. And I think that's what makes it so hard for that lost, you know, that military service member that's been in there a long time, gets out of the military. Their identity has just disappeared now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like who, who they were when they entered, that, that guy that used to like playing sorry with the family, you know, he's not there anymore, you know. Yep, that's for sure, and and I think that the, I don't I don't think that that's unique to the military. I think that as we grow and mature and move on and do different things in our lives, we leave behind pieces of ourselves. And some people never leave their hometown, and and maybe they're very similar and they do the same things, and maybe they're an exception. But I think that people in general move on and become different things. I'm sure we all can name folks we know that. They never saw a church in the day in, in their life while you were growing up with them, and now they're active members in their church. They're a different person, you know, or vice versa, just the opposite, you know, maybe. Um, you know, that that is, that's how I see it, at least. Yeah, definitely. I think definitely. we've had some great talks here tonight, Bjorn, and I, we appreciate you taking the time. We'd love to invite you back for part two, maybe to share some more stories at some point. But uh, I think that uh, it's about all the time we have for it today, and uh, we definitely yep. appreciate it, man. You've burnt, you you definitely opened our eyes on a lot of things, and I think a lot of people are going to love your perspective on. And I think we got into some deep subjects, and then we also got into some fishing. So this is a great episode. We appreciate your time, man. Hey, Bjorn. Yeah, thanks for having me too. And yeah, Al. Absolutely, bud. Before we let you go, though, man, who who are you going to shout out? Who am I going to shout out? Um, I don't know if I'm really going to shout out to anybody, to be honest, because I'd like to shout out to everybody. Um, you know, we, I, I could say I'd shout out to one guy, uh, unbelievable man that he's back in the military. He's over 60 years old. Um, Bob Duffney, Robert Duffney, and he and I served together for a long time in LSIM together. And he retired from the army and 10 years later joined the army again because they, they needed him. They needed guys to come back and he did. And he's still in today and he's over 60 years old and he's, he's out there, uh, you know, hooking and jabbing with the young guys and doing a great job flying echo model Apaches. Wow. 60, 60 plus year old guys out there flying Apaches. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. We had had them in our unit back when I was in Ilsheim. We had guys that were Vietnam vets and, were were much older than us and they were they were our they were the go-to guys you know that's nice yeah, no, but you don't want to look I, and i grew up around vietnam uh pilots and uh, because in the regiment you know we have a lot of those guys around and i'm just telling you these are not the guys that you just want to go take a joyride with because their idea of fun and my idea of fun are not the same <laughs> i i flew with a vietnam pilot once in a huey and I hadn't flown, I'd been flying Cobras for a year or so, hadn't flown a Huey in a while, got got a basically a sign off by the commander to go fly with this guy. And he says, do you remember how to fly this thing? I said, sure, I remember. And he, I, I'm not joking, he just sat back, 
and put his foot up on the console. He says, well, it's all yours then. And from the beginning to the end, I mean, I started it, I flew it, we, you know, navigated and landed. He pretty much didn't do anything because he was just like wanting to see what I could do. And he was an old Vietnam pilot. He says, I don't need any more flight time. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I will, I will give one more shout out to good buddy of mine, uh, Brett Beatty. So if you ever listen to this, Brett, shout out to you for what you did for military and, and the regiment and, He's, he's a he's a consummate professional and a great guy. All right. Well, I think that just about does it for all of us here at Fall In. Definitely, hopefully, you tune in and enjoy, and we'll see you next time. All right. Fall Thank In! You.